It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. For today's episode, I got the opportunity to visit with Mike McLaughlin. He's worked on some big ranches in Nevada, Arizona, and now he and his wife currently live in Idaho. He got an interesting start into this industry, and I'm excited for you to listen to it. just like to start off by having you talk a little bit about your childhood um, and the events that made you want to be interested in this kind of lifestyle, and then we can go from there. Okay, well, um, I've had horses since I was a little kid. My dad introduced me to horses. Um, I think one of the very first pictures of me was on a horse with my dad before I could walk. so it kind of grew from there. My dad has always been a, he always was a horseman. And um, so I kind of followed after that part of his life. He was a lot of other things like most people are, but um, he was a good horseman. And so that was, that was how I wanted to be, was a horseman, not necessarily a cowboy in those days, but uh, but a horseman. And so I pursued that for Gosh, I mean, my whole life, I can't remember a time when I really wasn't um, around horses one way or another. So um, I got, when I left home, finally, um, I started riding for different people uh, in California. That's where I was born. And um, what part of California? Well, I was born in, and raised in Southern California for quite a few years um, until it it kind of went, California went south pretty quickly by the time I was eight or nine years old. There was a lot of monstrous development in that part of the world, but there was still cattle outfits and, and a lot of horse uh, barns, that kind of, you know, training facilities and all that, all over Southern California. There was I think at one point in time, there was probably 250,000 head of horses in San Diego County alone. Wow. So anyway, if a guy was interested in, in uh, you know, training horses or something like that, or at least riding horses, that was that was a place to be in those days. That was, gosh, the, the early 70s. Um, That's neat. So that's that's where it started with me. And then um, I was riding horses for some people in the 70s. And um, 
they had decided that they wanted to move to Nevada, and that was 1974, I think. So when they moved up there, um, I went with them, and it wasn't too long after that that they sort of they they were too small. They were trying to restart their business, and it was too too much for them to have a hired hand there. So anyway, they suggested that I start looking around for work. So I got another job working for a guy by the name of Jim Hutzler uh, in Smith Valley, uh, Nevada, and um, so I worked for him for a while, and he had a bunch of unruly horses that hadn't been handled much or hadn't hadn't been handled well anyway so I got them going and so he told me one day he said he's he's going into the hospital for heart surgery and he wasn't sure if he was going to come out of that thing so oh, wow <laughs> yeah so he took me down to um Fred Fullstone the Fullstone Cattle Company in Smith Valley Nevada and he just we walked into the full stone house and he said fred he said hire this guy uh he worked for me but uh he needs he needs to come work for you and, and that was it he just said okay here go take your stuff to the bunkhouse and uh and i went to work for him on a cow outfit and they were a big outfit in those days uh they had i want to say they were something like two and a half million acres all told but i don't know i don't remember that that's accurate but anyway so i went to work and that was my my first big cow outfit to work on and uh had you been around smaller ones before that no didn't even ha did, well i'd been around them but not being a cowboy it was more like using their cattle to to train horses yeah um you know being a cowboy was interesting but it wasn't really what i wanted to pursue at the time but after i got to know the horse business for a while I realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do. It was just, it's in those days and it probably hasn't changed much to me. It was just a cutthroat business. So anyway, so I went to work for Fullstone Cattle Company and I never looked back. Um, I worked for them for, oh, a year or so, something like that. And then I just went to traveling around looking for work and I did a couple of other things and um that didn't really amount to anything just you know work just to draw a paycheck and then i got myself a job um for the mining outfit now this was very interesting because this was several years later so this was 78 something like that and uh so they took me to Gosh, I can't even think of the name of the place now. Um, it was out in the middle of nowhere. It was in between um, I-95, which would have been about, oh, south of Goldfield. That was I-95 from Vegas to up to Reno that way. But if, if you went west, then you would have been um, close to... Esmeralda, that would have been, that was Esmeralda County, but there was also, a, as I remember, there was a little town there called Esmeralda, or yeah, Little Fish Lake, something like that. But anyway, 
Um, so I went to work for this mine and, um, it was, it was a mess. I mean, these guys weren't really going to build a mine. They were just <laughs> hustling money. So I ran into these two guys out there in the middle of Nevada. Um, and they were working for a cow outfit there. And that ranch was called the Lida Ranch, L-I-D-A. And it was, it was huge. It was over a million acres and it didn't have one cross fence in it. Wow, that's neat. And so I said, well, well, you guys wouldn't need any help, would you? And uh, he goes, Steve Shepard was the guy's name. And he goes, yeah, we could do some help. Um, so he kind of asked me if I'd been around cattle. I said, yeah. And he says, well, uh, can you rope? I says, yeah, I can rope. Uh, not realizing what I was getting into. <laughs> um, so... It was two or three weeks later, I finally went to work for them, and um, I had enough money saved up from the mining that I went and bought myself a saddle, and I had a few things, but I didn't have much with me then, and uh, so I got I got enough gear to get me going anyway, and so I went to work for the Lighter Ranch. Well, unbeknownst to me... This ranch had been owned by Art and Jack Linkletter. I don't know if you know who they are. Art Linkletter, Art Linkletter was, he had his own TV show on, you know, in the 50s and 60s. So he and his brother owned this ranch. Well, they hired a, a guy by the name of Ron Wilhoyt to run it. And so Ronnie went and got himself a bunch of Okies out of, you know, out of Oklahoma cowboys to come out there and uh, and work for them. So the Link Letters owned that ranch, I think, for seven years, something like that. And of the seven years, five of those years, those guys weaned everything on the end of a rope. They didn't gather any cattle up and take them to a pen and sort the calves off. They caught all those calves right out there, wherever they saw them, they just ran out there and caught them, tied them down, and then they jerked them in a trailer. And when they got a trailer load or two, then they went home and they called that a day. And they did that for five years. Wow. How and that's many, every day. How many, calves, how many calves would they wean every year? Well, I don't know for sure. Um, however many they could catch every day. So. They would start it wherever they started, and they would catch these calves, big wiener calves. And if they were littler calves, then they would just tie them down, and they'd go back there and brand them with a running iron. And uh, that's how they ran that place for five of the seven years that the Linkletters owned it. So I show up. This is several years later, and these cattle were... They were spoiled rotten. I mean, they, if they saw a pickup and trailer going down the road, all you could see was just plumes of dust in every direction of cattle running. <laughs> so that's what I was getting myself into, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> so um, needless to say, after a year of that, because I learned some hard lessons there. I guarantee you what, it was that was not a place for green people to learn how to 
work cattle because it was very difficult to work cattle. You had to you had to make them stop, and then once you got them held up, then you had to hold on to them. And these guys that I worked with, there was only three of them, and in my estimation, they were probably the best hands I'd ever been around in my life to this day. And I've been around a lot of good, good cowboys, but they understood how to handle those kind of cattle. And if something, you know, we'd have them held up there for a little while, and if something ran off while we were trailing them from one place to another, because they did have pens out there, but they hadn't hardly ever been used, so nobody took care of them. So, you know, they were, yeah, so they were like barbed wire fences, and, you know, they were pretty loose. And yeah. if, if those, those cattle, if they decided that they wanted to, to leave, they just went through the fences. It didn't matter. They just, the way they'd go. So, uh, so like they were pretty trashy. They were very. And they didn't mind taking your horse out if you tried to, you know, hold them up sometimes. But anyway, so um, as as time went on, I, I figured out that this was no ordinary cow outfit. And so I thought I knew how to rope. But I didn't know how to rope until I got around those guys. And they showed me things about roping that I had never seen before. And it wasn't anything um, spectacular. They didn't have a lot of fancy loops and all of that kind of thing. But these guys, when they roped something, it was one loop and they were caught. And they expected you to catch whatever you were catching and tie it down and deal with it. So that's what I got from those guys. But... The main thing was handling cattle and reading cattle. That was the big thing that I learned from those guys was seeing cattle. Once you start throwing those kind of cattle together, um, you're always looking for the the one the, the ringleader, the one that's going to cause the most trouble. And those guys were good at it. And so over time, I learned how to recognize that stuff. And I've taken that with me everywhere I've gone. So if I was going to say one place educated me to the point of understanding cattle it would have been that place how to tie how to handle cattle how to trail cattle someplace when they don't want to go so one of steve's pet peeves was um trying to trail cattle down a road he did not like that at all he wanted to get them on their trails and take them where they were going and if you did that those cattle were a whole lot quieter because they were on the trail that they knew and all you were doing was kind of containing them between you. So at the most, there was three guys there. So we handled a big bunch of cattle would have, would have been 50 head. That would have been a big bunch of cattle. So I was there for a couple of years. And like I say, I took that with me everywhere I went. And so were so those I two? Sorry. What's that? Were those so those two guys that you said you learned the most from? Um, were they kind of hired after the other people had left and were trying to? No, no, I did, okay. I skipped that part. So um, when I got there, there was a man by the name of Jack Vote that owned the place. Now Jack's passed away. His wife passed away, um, but. At that time, Jack owned the lighter ranch, and uh, 
So it was, he didn't know what he was getting into because he had, I think he had come out of Oregon. So it was a whole different ball game from what he was used to. But anyway, so he, he had guys there, but they'd left. And, um, but one of the guys that had been there that kind of helped Steve Shepard to figure out how to run this thing was a guy by the name of Bob Scott. And Bob Scott, I don't even know if he's alive anymore. He's probably been retired for quite a few years. He quit Cowboy. And uh, probably when I was at the Lighter Ranch, he had already quit punching cows and uh, was working for the state highway department. But Bob Scott was a protege of, of Dave Erickson. And Dave Erickson, have you ever heard of him? I have. Okay, well, Dave Erickson was one of the premier wild cow catchers that, you know, I mean, in the modern era, he was probably one of the guys. So Bob Scott grew up around Dave Erickson. And so Bob Scott knew them kind of cattle and knew how to handle them, knew what to do with them quite well. And so he showed Steve Shepard some things about those cattle, and uh, then he went off to the state highway department. But that stayed with Steve, and so Steve showed me that kind of thing. And um, so what I'm getting at there is that that the experience that I had with those guys was was, um, a lot of it basically came from Dave Erickson. Although David never set foot on the place that I know of, but his his knowledge that he handed to Bob Scott was handed to Steve Shepard that was handed to me. So even though there was some uh, reinterpretation of some of it, it was still that kind of a thing. And that's to me, that's what Cowboy's all about. It's learning something from somebody and then taking it with you and then you expand on it. And you meet somebody that that might not be like minded, but you can you can still work with them. And pretty soon you exchange some ideas, and so you learn a little bit from him, and he learns a little bit from you, and you go on and handle whatever you know cattle you're handling out there. And so um, that's the way I've always viewed being a cowboy. Is it necessarily um, helping every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes along? But there are those people that show an interest in it, a real interest, and uh, you're you're more willing to help them because you know it's going to be applied to something other than sitting in a bar talking about your great exploitations, you know. <laughs> yeah, like they're going to actually use it and apply it to what they do. Absolutely, and take it from there and, and go on with it. If you grow up on one ranch, you're limited to what you learned on that ranch. Anyway, so... Um, so I go from the lighter ranch and I just start bumming around this place and that place and another place. But I took that with me and it changed everything about my my thought process on being a cowboy. It changed everything. Because at one point in time, I I wanted to be, I never wanted to be a buckaroo in the pure sense of the word. But at the same time, those guys like Dud Davis, who's been gone for years, he considered himself a buckaroo, but he was he was more he was more of a cowboy in my in my picture of a cowboy than any buckaroo I ever met. I mean that that cat was he was handy with a horse, he was handy with cattle, 
and that 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 guy could really rope and i mean he was nuts when it come to rope and it was just a one loop one shot one deal done and that's the way he he saw everything he said if you're going to rope he says rope he says don't don't screw around thinking about rope and he says if you're going to build a loop he says go catch it and it sounds easy but it's it's difficult to do that so those are the kind of guys that i was around so as time went on um I started getting on a couple of wagons, and I, and I say a couple of wagons. I started out because um, Light had never ran a wagon; they never had enough guys. They didn't. They didn't even mess with that because it wasn't. It wasn't a normal place. It really wasn't. From all the other cow outfits I was on, Lida was a unique experience in and of itself. They didn't have, like I said earlier, they didn't have cross fences on on over a million acres. They had one trap um, in between headquarters and 95 that was 50,000 acres. And we used that as our trap. We The trap oh, itself was 50,000 acres. Huh? The trap itself was 50,000 acres. Right. Wow. And so it had one water in it. And so we, when we put cattle in there, um, we had to take them to that water so they knew where it was. And so we'd take them to that water, and then we'd just, you know, ride off and forget about them and, and leave them there and, until we added some more to it. And then we'd have to go in there and clean all that up. So the 50,000-acre trap was just a – it was just a place to put cattle so they were out of our way. Um, like – most outfits they have big outfits they'll have a you know traps all over the place for cattle however they got it situated and of course then you got horse pastures and this that and the other thing but this place wasn't designed that way so um if you wanted to control cattle you controlled them with water so they shut waters off here and they would turn waters on over there and that's how they controlled them on the waters that they could control. But in places like Sylvania Canyon, where there was live water everywhere, um, and Sylvania Canyon, uh, it ran from east to west, the west being the low end of, of a series of canyons. And so if you followed those canyons from from the north end of it, going, say, going around to the west, you would if you were on the bottom of those canyons, you were looking at a perimeter fence, and on the other side of that fence basically was California. So if you went south from there and followed those canyon uh, mouths all the way around and then turned back to the east, you would wind up on the north end of Death Valley. So that, that's a lot of country. Yeah. But anyway, so after leaving there um, – I went and worked on the Grass Valley Ranch, and it was a registered Hereford outfit, and so it was it was like going from well, it was going from the Lida Ranch to a registered Hereford outfit. So <laughs> it was completely different, nothing like that. But still, the thing is, the cow is still a cow, and so they got to be handled. They got to be handled, and so. Handled those cattle was a piece of cake. I mean, it was and nothing. And where was it, it located at? It was, um, it would probably have been 40 or 50 miles east and a little south of Austin, Nevada. 
Okay. So I spent a little time there. I don't know. Not I don't know. I spent a half a winter and part of a spring there. Um, and those people are long gone. Molly Knutson and Bill Knutson, they're, they're both gone, have been for years. But um, anyway, so she was a... She was an interesting woman in her in her own right. Um, she pretty much put that cow outfit together and buried buried a one husband and two sister in laws, and uh, married another guy, Bill Knutson. So Bill and uh, Bill and her first husband were friends. Um, I can't think of the guy's name right now. Um, Dick McGee was his name, I believe, Dick McGee. Uh, so anyway, those guys were both Mustangers. So that's what they did. That was basically what they did for a living. And so Bill Knutson's dad, Chris Knutson, had a, he had a horse slaughter plant in Northern California, someplace out there. And uh, so they, Bill told me they, they transported a lot of horses out of that country and sent them down to the packing house down there. So um, when I got there, well, they weren't, they couldn't do that anymore. I mean, the BLM was in control of all the horses and this, that, and the other thing. And so um, I just worked for his, his wife, Molly, and she ran the cow outfit and he did all of the farming and irrigating and all that kind of stuff. So they, he didn't get involved with the cows in any way, shape, or form other than if she needed cattle hauled. And she was a really, really uh, knowledgeable woman. Um, it didn't interest me in any way, shape, or form, but at the same time, she was very knowledgeable about cattle. And uh, I had a lot of respect for her because she was a tough old hide. And she could get <laughs> out there and she could ride with, with me or anybody. But she was getting pretty old. But anyway, so I spent a little time there and I went from there to um, 85, so the end of 85, I went to the Diamond A's in Arizona for the first time, and um, Edmund Davis was the manager, um, Mike Davis was the wagon boss, and his brother was Jigger in that wagon, and them horses that they were well known for being broncs on that outfit. I mean, it was, everybody knew who they were because of them horses. So that's where I went to work. And uh, how did you end up um, getting in touch with them? Well, um, I got on a Greyhound bus, throwed my gear on the bus. And somebody had told me that, well, if you go to Seligman, Arizona, uh, Edmund lives in Seligman there. He says, you can find him there. Everybody knows where he lives. So I just went there and I wound up, I showed up at Seligman at two o'clock in the morning off of a Greyhound bus. And um, so I waited till a cafe opened up. So I just sat out there until a cafe opened up and I went and had a cup of coffee and asked him about Edmund Davis. And they said, yeah, just walk up this street and his house is right there. So I went up there and knocked on the door said I was looking for work and he and his he was already gone but his wife says well when he gets back uh here in a little bit he says I'll I'll uh, let him know that you're looking for work and so Edmund came down there and picked me up and took me to the wagon and um 
I spent most of that fall on that wagon. And um, I mean, when you're the new, when you're the new guy and the and the last guy hired for the wagon or one of the last guys hired, you just get whatever horses are left. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I wasn't good at all. I had a I had a handful of horses that were and here's the thing and I didn't think about it at the time but years later I realized what I had gotten myself into all of my horses were already shod so that tells you that <laughs> there was already people there ahead of you that shod those horses that weren't there and so they cut you that string of horses cuz they were shod and nobody wanted to ride them <laughs> <laughs> so um at least you didn't have to shoe them <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> that was the only good thing <laughs> because those horses when they bucked every day some of them bucked all day you know they weren't young horses they were all six seven eight nine ten twelve years old and they were they were bronx and you know, if you went to rope something, you better stay screwed down in your saddle because you never knew how that was going to turn out. And and I'm not saying that to, to make myself sound like I'm some wild bronc rider. I mean, I rode a lot of bucking horses, but you you had to get into a survival mode. And and that's that's not that's not an exaggeration. You had to get into survival mode with them horses because if they if you got caught off guard if you got yourself loosened up and were you know lollygagging around they'd get you and i mean they'd buck you off in a heartbeat and some of them wouldn't even leave they just stand over there and wait for you to get back on <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> yeah they wouldn't run off it wasn't like they were wild they weren't wild they were they were broke to a point they just didn't but, want you on them yeah, well, you know, if you wanted to ride them, you had to, you know, you had to earn your saddle seat. I mean, you had to, because they weren't going to just, you know, give up and go along meekly. They were, they were going to put up a bit of a fight. But anyway, so getting through that, um, so at the end of that, towards the end of that wagon, I was in town in Seligman. And uh, I was talking to some guys at the bar and this guy says, well, he says, well, I know that, that uh, the little Boquillas, um, they're, looking for, they're looking for help because somebody had, uh, somebody had gotten hurt on, the, on their wagon, and so they were looking for help. And so I didn't, nobody had a phone number, so I just went, I just basically got my paycheck and loaded up on the, on the next bus and went down there. And uh, I finally got, found somebody down there in um, Benson, Arizona, that, that knew Mike. And, and so I got a phone number, and I called him on the phone, and I said, I'm looking for work. I heard you might need somebody. And he goes, yeah, I do. He says, so where are you? I said, Benson. He says, okay, I'll come over. He sent somebody over to get me. I think it was the Jim McMahon, who was the jigger boss at that time. He came and got me and took me out there to the wagon. And um, so they'd already been into this thing. So here's the second wagon I'm on uh, where I got shod horses and I was the new guy there. So I had to, I had to earn my spot, <laughs> but it was a totally different situation because their horses were good. 
their cattle were a little goofy, but not bad. And so that I understood. So backing up a little bit, when you went to the Diamond A's and you had all these bronc horses, uh, the cattle were reasonably gentle. But in those days, when I was there in 86, the Diamond A's had 10,000 steers and 800 mother cows. Wow. So they were running Mexican steers, and those Mexican steers, unbeknownst to me, were owned by Harvey Dietrich. Now, Harvey Dietrich is is a name that um, is synonymous with with Mexican cat with Mexican steers. I mean, he probably did more to bring um, a kind of oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a kind of symmetry to the Mexican cattle coming out of Mexico being being bought and then run on these big outfits like the Diamond A's, like the Gray's Ranch, uh, like the like the Sevens. Um, there's quite a lot of places that were running, you know, big amounts of steers. So the Diamond A's had ten thousand. Uh, the Gray's Ranch. When I was at the Gray's Ranch, we were running. Again, we were running Harvey Dietrich's cattle, and we were probably running 8,600 head of steers. So, but anyway, now here's the interesting thing about the Gray's Ranch, the Little Boquias, the Big Boquias. At one time, they were all under one brand, and that's the Vittorio Land and Livestock, which was the, the original Diamond A. So I have pictures when I was when I went back to the Diamond A. I actually learned how to work a camera by then. <laughs> and I took I have a picture of a of a Diamond Day truck that still had the Vittorio Landing Cattle logo on it. So and Vittorio Landing Cattle do you know? Huh? Why did why did it split? Like why was it no longer part of the Diamond Day? Oh heck, I don't know. Money. They got too big for their own good or they went off in other things or it wasn't profitable for them to because the Victoria Land and Cattle, I think, was actually um, an oil company. I think I, it, I'm not sure. I, it's been so long since I thought about this that I think it was Tenneco that actually owned the the Diamond Day brand. That was the Victoria Land and Cattle. I think it was the Tenneco Oil Company that actually owned all this. Okay. But I don't know that I'm. It's been so long since I thought about it. I might not be correct about that. So. I wouldn't put that down as gospel. <laughs> okay. Back to the little bokeh. So I, w- I go to work for Mike Fitzgerald, and there was, and as a matter of fact, I'm standing here looking at the men on that wagon that because that year that I was there in 87, Gary Voorhees came down there and did an article on a wagon outfit and so there was me, Mike Vessels, Jerry Scott, Len Babb, and this guy right here. I can't think of it. Jim Shugart. Yeah, those are the those are the people that I'm looking at the picture of them right now. But those are the guys that stay in my mind. Um, Jim Shugart's passed away. He had been the wagon boss there for 20 years. He was a he was probably in his 60s by the time I was around him there, but he was still a, a heck of a cowboy. I mean, a heck of a hand. 
and he knew that place really well, but Mike never used him, didn't use his information. But anyway, um, so I got done with that, got through that wagon. We got all of his steers shipped off. He had, oh, I don't know, 2,500, 3,000 steers, and he kept them down on the San Pedro River. Well, the San Pedro River is a is a dirty piece of country. It's a treacherous, treacherous piece of country. That's where um, the guy that I took his place, Rick Taylor, he had, they had been down on the, on the San Pedro gathering steers and his horse fell in a, in a badger hole and it stuck him out on the bank of the, of the badger hole on the other side because it was right on the riverbank and it threw him out there, but it, it he landed on his own head oh. and, it, and it broke his neck. And so I actually met the guy. He was still there because um, I was just wagon trash. So he was, you know, going to get healed up and still have him a job there. But I took his place and um, and rode most of his horses. And uh, so he, I met him a couple of times and a real nice guy. But um, by the time we got all that done, I think gathering those steers off the San Pedro was the last thing we did. Then we trailed bulls from, uh, I think it was called Horse, no, not Horse Camp. I can't think of the name of it now. A camp up there just above Benson. But we trailed bulls from there down to their winter range. And then we went to headquarters down on on Fairbanks. That's where Mike lived, Fairbanks, Arizona. There's no town there. It's just a railroad stop at the time and um mike's house was down the road from there so we left and by then i'd partnered up with a guy by the name of mike vessels and uh so we started running together and we went from there to the gray's ranch because it was getting on to winter and so we went out and we talked to lonnie moore who was running the gray's ranch at that time and um he was going to be processing steers in. So we got a job there in the winter and we worked through the winter um, processing steers and it was cold, cold, cold. Man, it was cold. It seemed like it would, the day we got cattle in there, it would snow. And so you'd, you'd be moving these cattle around in the snow. Then the next day when we processed the steers, it would be crystal clear, colder than. Man, it was cold. <laughs> and so then when we processed everything, um, then we'd have to trail them out to different waters. And, and we'd process, oh, six, six truckloads at a time. So they were probably averaging um, 425 pounds so we were probably, and those were those were the forty foot trucks. So we were probably only getting like ninety five head on those forty foot trucks, as I remember it. I don't think they were really using a lot of fifty and fifty three foot trucks in those days. But anyway, so that's what we were doing there. So we'd go out every day once we got them cattle located, and we would doctor cattle. And so we had a bit of an epidemic there uh, with that shipping fever they got pretty sick and uh, so we were going out in pairs and we were probably doctoring 60 head of steers a day per pair of guys wow 
So we did a lot of roping. And I was, you know, that was, the, roping those little Mexican steers wasn't hard at all. I mean, they they were fairly <laughs> gentle. Even, you know, the sick ones were worse than the, than the healthy ones because the sick ones were always trying to hide. So anyway, so we finished that up, me and Vessels did. And um, so we did, it was in between work. So it was in between spring wagons and all of that kind of stuff. So we went and stayed with with his mom for the remainder of the early late winter, early spring in Bisbee, Arizona. And then once things started to open up again, well, then we, we went and got a job on the Sands Ranch, which is um, north of Sierra Vista. The little town of Whetstone is, is the closest little town to the Sands Ranch. And um, so it was a typical Southern Arizona kind of a deal. Um, more deserty, a lot of everything that was out there pretty much would, you know, stick you or poke you or something and, <laughs> or bite you, you know. So one of those kind of deals. Yeah. It was a it was a real interesting place to work. They had Charlie Sands was the guy that owned it at the time. I uh, had been in his family for quite a few years, so it was a an old established ranch, and I'm pretty sure it's still there to this day. I don't know that Charlie's alive anymore, but Charlie wasn't a cowman. He was a college car dealer, you know, kind of a guy, but. Every time a new idea came along, well, that's what he got into. So you never knew what was happening on the Sands Ranch. Um, <laughs> yeah, because he was always into something. But but it was an interesting place to work, and I enjoyed it there. I got to know a uh, a guy by the name of Dan Figueroa, who's uh, – he's gone also. He was a young guy. Um, he was a little bit younger than me, and uh, we got to be really good friends. And so – after we got done with the with the Sands Ranch, now my memory's starting to to go foggy. No, that was another time. But anyway, so um, I went from there, and I stayed with Jerry and his and his wife Jeannie for a little while there in. Uh, they had a camp on the on the little Boquillas. I stayed with them for a while, and then I went north back up to Nevada, and I hung out in a place called Silver Peak, which is right in the country of of the old Lighter Ranch. So I went back to work at the Lighter Ranch, and you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you you just keep making these circles and. Uh, so I went back there. Well, I knew what the deal was then. So I was, you know, I, I already knew the whole program. So Steve cut me some horses and away we went. So it, it, nothing had really changed. Um, the cattle were still bronchy. And so it was just, you know, business as usual there. And, um, but I got, I got to thinking about it. And I thought, you know, I've, 
I really enjoyed it down there in Arizona, and I really did. And so I I went back down there, and, I mean, it wasn't like the next week or something like that. It was a year or so later. Yeah. And, um, I went back down there, and, and there wasn't anything going on. So by then, it's 89 1989, and uh, so I I thought, well, the heck with it. So I I came back up to Nevada, and I got a job working for Russell Ranches. Dan Russell was uh, he was a big time um, rancher. He had, he had come into a lot of money, and so he was buying up ranches in Nevada. He he had more AUMs in the state of Nevada than any other ranch in the state. And that's wow. saying something. Yeah. So at the height of his um, time in Nevada, I was working for him then. I think, according to what the manager told me, we had somewhere in the neighborhoods of 48,000 mother cows. 48,000. Right. Wow. I know it. I never saw them all. I mean, they were scattered everywhere. Because he had big holdings in, in Nevada, plus he had a ranch of, or two in Wyoming, and then they had uh, their original country in California. And anyway, going to work for Russell Ranches was just kind of like coming home to the lighter ranch. The cattle were spoiled, terribly spoiled. They handled better than the lighter ranch cattle, but I, you know, I, I felt like I was in my element. I knew these cattle, even though I didn't know any of them, I understood them. So I fit right into that deal. And I stayed and worked for Russell for, gosh, oh, I don't know, 90, 91, 92, through there. And Within the course of that, then I, I got married a second time. I, I don't include all this other stuff because it's it doesn't have a whole lot to do with ranching, you might say. But um, So I got married in that time. And um, so my wife, she came with me to Russell Ranches, and she became the headquarters cook. And um, they loved her. I mean, they... He's always been a fantastic cook, and so them cowboys, they were just in love with her. They'd <laughs> do her dishes for her because she made them two and three desserts all the time, you know. So they just, Aww. whatever she wanted, yeah, whatever she wanted, they'd do. So <laughs> so, um, so I became, by that time, there was a guy there uh, by the name of Bill Perez. And Bill Perez is a, and he's still alive, he's. 70 years old, I think. He might be a little older than that. Um, but he's a heck of a hand. I mean, he come out of out of the Lone Pine Independence Country of California. And, uh, honey, how old is Bill Perez now? 73. Yeah, Bill's 73 now. Um, everybody that knows him calls him Jug. Um, <laughs> yeah, he... <laughs> Kind of fits that description, um, but a heck of a cowboy. And uh, so I jiggered for him for a while there, and uh, I enjoyed it. I, I really, 
we were we were horseback every day. We didn't spend our time driving around in pickups all the time or anything like that. We 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 got a horseback every day that the weather would allow us, and even some days, even when the weather didn't allow us, we still got a horseback and and went and did something. And and I enjoyed that. I I figured if I'm in a cowboy, that that's the place to be is on on the back of a horse. So yeah. So Russell Ranches was monstrous, and there was cattle everywhere, and I don't even know if they knew how many cattle they seriously if they had forty eight thousand they might have had you know more than that they might not have had that many but anyway you never was knew the owner what, help? like was he was he just the money man or would he actually was he actually involved in the day to day work oh no he wasn't involved in the day to day work he was he, he was way beyond that he was busy putting this deal together and doing that thing and whatever it was he did. Um, he would fly into the ranch and, or he would, he and his wife would drive in from California or wherever they were at at the time. And they'd come in and spend two or three days and he'd drive around a little bit, look at things and then away he'd go. So I knew Dan a little bit. I'd spoken with him a few times. My wife actually met him more than I did because they would always go over there and eat at the cookhouse. So, <laughs> He met him more than I did, but um, so Dan was a big operator, and when he when it finally came crashing down on him, he was, as I understand it, he was eighty eight million dollars in the hole and couldn't see his way out. But he was already an old man, so they eventually they had a dispersal sale, and you know sold all the cows and sold the equipment and sold the land. And I don't know what happened to him after that, but they broke all that stuff up. And so now it's owned by who knows who. I mean, it's, it's long gone. So that was, that was Russell ranches. And it was a, it was a heck of a place to work. I mean, it was, it was uh, a big deal. And uh, everybody, the cops knew, Everybody on the ranch, I mean, if you drove through with a with a Russell Ranch pickup and it didn't have any headlights or taillights or anything like that, they didn't even pull you over <laughs> because it was, they knew it was a Dan Russell rig and they didn't even bother with Dan because he was, you know, he paid more taxes than anybody in the state of Arizona or state of Nevada, so they left him alone. Well, that was handy for you guys driving the pickups with no lights. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was handy in one respect, but it it was unhandy in another respect because people got to taking advantage of that thing. And the next thing you know, you had, well, all kinds of things going on, you know, illegal stuff. So, I mean, I don't even want to get into that. It was mm-hmm. just, it was, it got pretty bad after a while. But anyway, so um, after working for them, I decided, well, it's time to go to Arizona. So I, my wife and I drove down there. We took a little vacation and drove around there. And I, I talked to a guy by the name of Tip Tipton, who was the manager of the Diamond A's again. And um, I said I was looking for work. So he had a camp open. And so I got the Rosewell camp. And so I went from wagon trash to being a, a camp man. So 
anyway, um, so I spent a couple of years working for the Diamond A's again. Well, Ed Ashurst was the, he was the wagon boss there at that time. Okay. And so there was Colt Morehouse, myself, Chip Dixon, uh, Brad Mead, Scott Westlake, um, Jim Ivey, called, they called him Baldy. Um, who else was there? Um, gosh, I can't think of the, I think that was it. That was the camp men around there because Tip and his wife, they lived at Hoffman. Ed lived in town in a, in a company house in town there in Seligman. And, um, so I had Rosewell, um, Brad Mead had, uh, had Kesey Hall, Baldy Ivy had Black Tanks, Chip Dixon had 16, and, and uh, Cole, Morehouse, Cole Morehouse had uh, the number five camp. So that was, that was it. Plus, you had some headquarters guys down there. Uh, but uh, Ed ran a good wagon. Um, it was a big wagon. We had 10,000 mother cows at that time. So it was constantly going all the time. Um, and Ed, Ed had, well, if you, if you've talked to Ed, then you know that he, he pretty much got his, his big start, uh, at Babbitt's with, uh, with Bill Howell. I mean, that's kind of where he learned how to run a wagon and run a crew. And yeah, he talked really highly of Bill. So Bill Howell, there's another thing. Bill Howell influenced a lot of people. Ed Asher's being one of them, myself included, uh, and most of the guys that grew up at the at Babbitt's of uh, the older, you know, the guys like Clay and Everett and those guys, they all grew up around Bill Howell. And Bill Howell was a heck of a horseman and a heck of a cowman, and he could rope as good as anybody I ever been around. Um, so I was glad that, you know, that's the thing about I was saying earlier, it it's it's the the people that you you work with and the people that you know in that business they're the ones that that make you or break you you know you do you take that information and do something with it but working around guys like Ed or Bill uh how uh it was uh it was always interesting and uh but Babbitt's isn't you know the Babbitt ranches wasn't uh it wasn't a wild cow outfit like the Lider ranch but at the same time, it was a big place, and so you you had to understand a big drive and how to handle cattle, this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, it, it even though the cattle were a lot gentler, more manageable, um, they're still cows, and you can't ever forget that they're still cows, and they do have a mind of their own. <laughs> um, so, yeah, back to the diamond A's. So, so I worked there. Um, one, two, three, four wagons with with Ed, and then Tip Tipton. He he didn't like Ed because Ed was kind of overbearing, and, and when it come to the cow business end of it, and he knew his business, knew it well. If they'd have left him alone, just let him do what he needed to do, he'd have he'd have done a lot of good stuff for that ranch. But they couldn't let go of it, so they they fired Ed. And uh, so when when they fired Ed, well, everybody quit. 
because nobody was going to work for Brad Mead. And those of us that did stay, um, we regretted it until we finally left. Me, Cole Morehouse, and Chip Dixon, and a few others, we just pulled out eventually. So, so that was the end of wasn't the end of the Diamond Days because I went back there several more times, but. Um, so I went from there and we went, eventually went back up to Nevada and I went to work for Bill Perez on the Rafter Diamond out of Deeth. And okay. see, that's, that's right there in Tabor Dahl's home country. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. So anyway, I went to work for Bill on the, on the Rafter Diamond and he had, he was running a bunch of steers for a lawyer out of Southern California or San Francisco rather. And Julian was his first name, but I can't remember his last name. Real nice guy. Um, so they had they had those steers, and I don't remember how many they had, several thousand of them. But then they had at the north end of the Rafter Diamond, they had um, a, they had leased some ground to. Um, oh, he's a feller out of California. Been ranching there for forever. Um, John is his, I'll think of his name, but anyway, so, so I went to work for Bill Perez and we were, got there about the time that we started gathering, moving steers around and gathering steers and steers are easy to do for the most part. They don't have a lot of problems with them once you get them put together, you know, and kind of get them through their little rough spots and this and that and the other thing. So we went to gathering on them steers and we finally got the steers gathered and, um, got them where they needed to be before we shipped them out of there. And so then they said, uh, well, we're going to go up here to the north end and gather these cows for this guy. And I can see the guy. I, I worked with his crew there at, at the Rapture Diamond, a real good bunch of guys. I just can't think of the guy's name right now. But anyway, um, so we went up there and Julian had a, he had a, handful of Dutch belted cattle up there also. I don't know, maybe a hundred head or so. But then uh the other feller from California, he had five, six hundred head of cows in there. And uh so they had pretty much all calved out. So we were just gathering them up. They were gonna worm them and I think we were stripping the calves off of them and then they were gonna turn those cows back out, cull a few of the cows. But anyway so that was working for Bill Perez, and so when that deal was done, then uh, my wife and I loaded our stuff up, and we we went to Southern Arizona. Boy, did we get into some wrecks there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went to work for um, the Sierra Bonita Ranch. That was the initial job that I had. And the Sierra Bonita was the old Hooker Ranch, which is the oldest registered brand in the state of Arizona. Now, I have one of their brands out here, out the front door. Um, but there was, cool. un yeah, unbeknownst to me, the, the mother and the son were feuding with each other over the land, over the cattle. And, and I mean, it was just a complete mess. So after a couple of weeks, and I mean, just a couple of weeks, I, I told my wife, I said, we, this is not for us. So I got a job. I called around and talked to some people and they said, well, call this Willow Springs outfit. And 
So I called Willow Springs Ranch and the guy needed help. So I went over there. But on the phone, he asked me, well, do, do, do you know how to do you know how to be around trashy cattle? And I said, yeah, I do. And uh, so I could tell he was a little skeptical. So I just explained a little bit about how to handle trashy cattle. Well, he didn't even know. He had no idea. He come from southeastern New Mexico. He'd never seen them kind of cattle in his life. But he was stuck with it. So he was trying to find somebody that knew how to knew how to handle those kind of cattle. And I said, yeah, they had a perfectly good hand over there on the three C's side of that thing. But Don Heinemann was an older guy and, and very experienced. I mean, a, a really good cowboy. But they didn't want to listen to him for whatever the reasons. And uh, so anyway, so we go there and we had the Christensen camp, which is, uh, oh, let's see, the Willow Springs Ranch would be, have you ever heard of the biosphere? I haven't. Okay. Well, anyway, it was a big deal where they they built this completely self-contained greenhouse kind of living system and they put people in there to live in there. Well, anyway, the the Willow Springs Ranch was just a little bit north of there, eight or 10 or 12 miles. And so the, the, if you went south out of the Willow Springs Ranch and got out on the little highway out there, it would take you east. And then if you hit the Florence Highway, you would go down to Tucson. So you were, we were just, I don't know, 35 miles north of Tucson, 40 miles north of Tucson, something like that. So it was cactus country, rough country. And the cattle were spoiled rotten, just horrible, terrible things. And um, these guys that were running it didn't have a clue how to run them cattle. And I was of the opinion that if you don't know how to run it, then <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how to run it because you're supposed to be running it. So he would he would have to ask me what I thought about something, but he rarely ever did that. But that's beside the point. So these cattle were... They were trashy and hard to handle, and nobody was handling them, and nobody had handled them. So they decided to hire a helicopter to gather the cattle. And the, the, the helicopter guy was a man that, by the name of Russ Hill, very good at it, probably one of the very best. And he gathered up a lot of cattle for those guys, and, and it's a good thing. Because you couldn't get anything done with those guys because they were one guy would do this and two other guys would go and do something completely different from what the original plan was. And so nothing would come together. But anyway, so in the process of all that, we had a lot of cattle to handle and catch. And these guys weren't very good at it. Outside of Don Heinemann and John Woodburn, who stayed over there with Don Heinemann on the three C's side of that thing. Um, the rest of them were just, they just didn't know. So you were, if I was there doing stuff, I didn't rely on them. I just took care of what I needed to take care of. And if I got cattle handled, then I got them handled. And if I had to rope something and tie it down, I got it roped and tied down and went back and got my own cattle. And, um, so that was it day in and day out. And I, I was, <laughs> I told my wife one day, I said, we got to get out of this place. It's just a, it's a nut house. So um, unbeknownst to me, Vic Hal had been looking around for me to see where I was at. Cause he was, 
looking for somebody for the SP camp. And I finally called him on the phone and he goes, well, yeah, he says, I've been looking for you. And I said, well, this is where I'm at. He says, well, when can you be here? I said, just as soon as I possibly can get everything loaded up, we'll be there. So <laughs> anyway, we got our stuff eventually loaded up. John Woodburn helped us move our stuff. And so we got up there and um, parked our stuff and stayed at Tin House. We stayed at the headquarters for a few days. And then we stayed over at Tin House, uh, the old Tin House building for a few days because Chip Dixon was leaving the SP camp. And so he was going to move out and we were going to move in. So, and Chip and I already knew each other. So we kind of followed each other around there for quite a few years, one camp or another. But um, so that was my first experience on Babbitt ranches. So we were, they were kind of in the middle of stuff. So when I got there, I, they just cut me some horses and I went to work gathering and uh, my wife kind of cooked around there for them while we were down there at Tin House until Chip got moved out. And uh, when he got moved out, then we moved in and we just kept on going with the wagon and um, got that all done. So we finally got settled into that house. And uh, so we spent a couple of years there working for Babbitt's. And it was uh, Babbitt's is, is probably one of the most well-organized ranches you would ever want to be on. I mean, Bill Howell was obsessive compulsive about certain things about about how cattle were handled and everything about it. I mean, he, he didn't, everything that he did was with a purpose. So that's what I liked about them is everything that they did was planned out with a purpose so that when you sorted these cows out, then they were going to go to a specific place. And um, so they would, Babbitt's is famous for, if you've got, nine guys on the crew, then they'll send you 10 directions. So, yeah, I mean, that's just the way they operate. So you're you're working really shorthanded all the time with whatever you're doing, other than the main bunch of guys gathering cattle and doing something. But once you start splitting up, well, they'd say, well, you two guys go up here. And I saw 10 steers up here on the Diamond Ace at Schaefer. Would you you two guys go get them? And that would be the conversation right there. So you didn't know what you were getting into. I mean, we did because, you know, Schaefer was Diamond A cattle right across the fence. And so away we'd go. But Babbitt's was to this day, and I haven't been around Clay when he took over that thing since Vic passed away. But um, I doubt that he's moved too far from from the original uh, plan. Uh, because both Bill and Vic were sort of OCDC about how to do, you know, how to get things done, where to go, how long you were going to be at a certain place, and the cows you were going to work, and how many cows you were going to put here, and how many cows you were going to put there, and so forth and so on. And and um, it was it was a a well organized place to work, and so we were there for a couple of years. And I was talking to a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Lee Pale, and he says, uh, well, gosh, the ROs, they're the ORO ranch in, in Arizona. They're, they're looking for a guy to come down here to Francis Creek. 
And so I made a plan to do that. And so I told Vic over the, I just told him, I said, we're going, I'm going to the ROs. And he said, well, when are you leaving? I said, I don't know, in a week or so. And so I got, I got everything straightened out there and we went to the ROs and uh, there was another place that I'm so glad that I went there. Um, it was, in my estimation, is probably in those days it was the cowboyist outfit that I had ever worked on, including the lighter ranch. For all of the lighter ranch, it was the ROs was um, it was a cowboy outfit. We didn't trailer a horse anywhere. We didn't trailer a cow anywhere. We trailed everything wherever we went. We trailed our horses with us. We trailed our cows with us. And as that wagon moved around, we gathered up the cut and we got them organized and we took them with us wherever we went and um that was another place that really stands out in my mind as uh as a real uh, just a heck of a cow out there cisco scott was running the wagon then and i worked for them for five years and it was it was a good five years um, I did get hurt there. I had, uh, we were making us, it was in the springtime and we were at Bear Creek and, and, um, we had gathered up a handful of cattle, I don't know, 80, 100 heads, something like that. And we had a, a little slick bull, two year old, I guess, long yearling, two year old. He jumped the, he jumped the fence and there was a gate right there. So, um, a guy got off his horse and opened the gate, and me and Brian Dagenall went through the gate, and we went after this little bull. And no big deal, you know, little bulls are like that. So I billed to this little guy, and, and I, I wanted him to go down off of this little ridge and get down on the flat, kind of right behind the branding trap. And I thought, well, I'll just get him off of this, and I'll take him down there and catch him out on the flat, and then we'll we'll put him in another gate. So I'm shoving him off this little ridge and my horse jumps a deadfall and the ground falls away from underneath his feet and he falls down and throws me out there out on the ground and no big deal. I, I felt it coming and I just let it, I just kind of loosened up and let him pitch me out there. Well, I was tied off. And so when he got up and I got spat up, well, the rope was around my right foot. Oh no! And it come tight, and uh, Playboy took off, and he drugged me up a walk uh, through the rocks. And Brian was out there. Brian Dagenall was out there, so he was doing all he could to. Um, since I was tied off, this thing come tight over my right ankle. Well, this horse drags me up through this draw, and Brian gets around in front of him, and turns him back into the crew because they had come out by that time. And they had penned those cattle and come out there. And um, so they got the horse stopped while he jumped over me and went around a juniper tree and sucked me up into the juniper tree. And I stopped him by hanging up in the tree. And I could see him on the other side of the tree. And he hit so hard that it, it, it made that saddle move over, you know, to the right side a little bit. And so uh, Cody Taylor came up there and cut that rope. And needless to say, I was uh, pretty badly injured, no broken bones, but I wound up having my shoulder rebuilt, and uh, it was a long recovery. 
so was it a colt you were riding or what, what no he was a broke horse but he oh, was really he wasn't the kind of horse that you wanted to be hung to yeah and he was a good horse he was one of my favorite horses but you know if you if things went wrong uh in that respect you you weren't sure what he'd do yeah and i got pictures of him dragging a 800 pound slick bull to the fire <laughs> so needless to say somebody my size he didn't even <laughs> know he had anything back there <laughs> yeah so uh. anyway so I get through that, and the fall wagon, by the time I'm healed up, it's been um, all that, that spring, that summer. I had an operation, rebuilt my shoulder, had some cancer removed from my face. I get healed up, and, I, and I'm, I'm to the point where I can kind of get around, and I'm getting pretty antsy. So the, the fall wagon shows up down there, and this is along about, oh, Thanksgiving, probably the week before Thanksgiving. So they show up, and Cisco Scott, believe it or not, he, the wagon boss, he shoes two horses for me. And I thought, you know, you're a special guy to do that for me. <laughs> and so I was able to get a horse back and 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 go with them and and help them with their drives and this that and the other thing. And so uh, I finally got over that and. Went back to Jigger in the wagon for Cisco, and I did that for four and a half years, uh, and it was it was a real experience because Cisco is he isn't a real talkative person, so if you were going to make a drive, he would you'd pull up on a ridge or something like that, and he'd point out there someplace, and he'd go, "The holdup's there, uh, you go here," and then he'd just leave. That's it. So you had a lot of deciphering to do when it came to understanding from the point that you left to the point where you needed to arrive with cattle, you needed to do a lot of thinking. And that's just how Cisco was. He'd just say, go there, the holdup's over there, see ya. That concludes part one of my interview with Mike McLaughlin. Stay tuned for part two coming out in one week. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. You can also go and put a face behind the name with everybody we've been visiting with. If you head over to our Instagram page, it's at cowboystories underscore podcast. (laughs) 